The year was 731 BC. Isaiah was having a year of intense testing and growth as young King Ahaz took the throne. I wanted to have like a Star Wars theme rolling across the screen, but I figured that was too complicated. But the idea here is that he penned what you just read after a very trying year of the king, the court, even the people rejecting the word of God and rejecting him. But look at where he lived. He not only saw the Messiah's coming, his throne established, his wonderful counseling, but he was living in it during that time, long before it ever happened. Which tells you and I that we can live in it now, what, since it happened a long time ago. So let's kind of carry that into the present now. So you might want to ask yourself right now, how was your year last year? Was it a year of spiritual growth? And what I mean by that is not a whole bunch of warm fuzzies and tingly feelings up and down your back. Was your character fundamentally changed last year? As you sit here today, looking on the next year, can you look back at times when you and Christ wrestled with things? The scripture came alive to you. And you can point to that verse, you can, you can memorize it almost, because it was what you held on to during whatever you went through. Or was your year full of frustration? Are you just as stressed, just as anxiety-ridden as you were last year? Still struggling with the same principles, the same issues, still fearful about what's taking place around you? One denotes someone who's trusting in the word of God no matter where it leads them. The second denotes somebody trusting in something other than God, perhaps themselves, perhaps other philosophies. And so what I want to do is look at uh, the coming of this new king, Ahaz, and so the passages I want to look at are the ones just before the ones you've just read. So back up one chapter to verse 11, and we'll jump in here. I'm going to be picking out different pieces. Isaiah is a difficult prophet to preach on because he layers things. He'll, he'll start with a, a, a thought, move into the next thought, and then he'll bring that thought that he started with back again, and he'll keep layering it. Sometimes we'll talk about the salvation of the present. Sometimes we'll talk about salvation in the future. And he weaves it together beautifully. So I'm going to be picking through this passage here, the last part of Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 22. But just some background. So Isaiah was trying to turn his godless king and his people back to the word of God. Very specific. It was not just some idea or some concept, but back to the word of God, which they had rejected. Always people relying on human wisdom tend to rely on their fears to generate their, their solutions. They have conjecture. They have mystic deception taking place in this context. And I have a feeling that the church isn't too far removed from that today. That a lot of the things that we are caught up in, the reason we aren't moving forward, the reason the church is dying in the Silicon Valley, is because we're still hung up in some of the fears and conjecture and mysticism that existed all the way back then. 2,748 years ago, to be precise. So the year, 731. Ritzin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the, the son of Ramal-Yahu, the king of Israel, were trying to force young king of Judah, um, Ahaz, into an anti-Assyrian alliance. The Assyrians were gaining power again. They were back on, on the, the playing field, and they were taking over. And the southern kingdoms, with the northern kingdoms, were looking to new ways of protecting themselves. Ahaz refused this alliance, though. Instead, he decided to rely on Assyria itself, to go beyond them and say, can you protect us from our neighbors? 
Now, this is the fascinating part about this. God sent Isaiah to him prior to this decision and said, please don't do this. Don't trust in Assyria. They will conquer you. They will destroy you. They will try to devour you. Trust in me. And then Isaiah is given permission to tell Ahaz, ask for anything, any sign you want. You can think of any incredible sign you want, and I will do it for you. And Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. That is obstinance. That is a rejection of God. It's, it's, it's tantamount to treason, which makes the next verse make more sense. If you look at verse 11, this is what God says to Isaiah. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. For years, Isaiah warned the people to adhere to God's word as a way of life. But being sinners like ourselves, they demanded immediate solutions, formulated unholy alliances, and appeased their fears. The conspiracies that were involved here was the, Assyria, uh, the Syrians, Laman, and the Israelites, the northern kingdom, were joining together, and probably other forces as well, maybe the Philistines were in there perhaps, to stand against the coming of Assyria from the north. And this conspiracy was looking to swallow up Judah, who wasn't like their Samaritan brothers. They had remained faithful for a large part, but that wasn't Ahaz's motive for not joining. He wanted to be his own king. He wanted to be his own man like his father before him. And so he decides to one-up his neighbor and reach for this powerful nation of Assyria, this godless nation of Assyria, to support and protect and to be, in a sense, their father figure. You and I have this option every single day, who we're trusting in, who we're relying upon. We can either call on the God of the universe, our creator, our savior, or we can trust in ourselves and the world's false structures around us. So God commands Isaiah, and strongly so, to not legitimize these theories or fears. Now, as a, as a Christian, I think we struggle with this sometimes. We get all kinds of data growing up, especially us, and we live in this uh, Western world, especially this little niche that we live in, which is so, I don't know, well-educated, so scholarly. It gives us the, the serious small leap of faith to say, I'm gonna trust in the wisdom of man. It's before our eyes. Most people in here have a college degree. And we tend to trust in those things, tend to trust in our own wisdom and the things of men. And we try to tag them on to Christianity rather than making them subservient to Christianity. This is what Isaiah was up against. Think about this. The king and his court officials come out to the people and they lay out the problem. Here's the situation. Here's the danger. Here's the need. They cultivate a real fear in the people. Now, I say real fear because they had been struggling with Syria for a long time and Israel as well. However, the fear that they would actually take them over was contrary to the prophet and what the prophets were saying, contrary to the word of God. And yet they held that fear as though it was something legitimate. It was an improper fear. It's sort of this boogeyman that was created. And now the people have to go through day after day with this fake fear looming over them that somehow God is not going to protect. God is not going to come to their aid driving them to agree and even accept the solutions of those in authority. 
Meanwhile, Isaiah, whose name literally means Yahweh is salvation, is standing right there amongst them. This is amazing. I'm not going to even try to pronounce it, but Isaiah named his son the the Aram Israeli. Now, Aram is another name for Syria. The Aram Israeli alliance will be broken by Assyria. That's what he named his child. So this is the committed prophet, okay? This prophet's trying to get the word out. He says, you know what? I need a sign. Okay, kid, you're going to be named this now. And the kid's walking around with this name saying, what you're afraid of isn't going to happen. This is what they're standing in the midst of, and yet they're not receiving this message. It's almost hard to imagine if God could have done anything more to keep these people from following after the world and following after their fears. Uh, offered the sign. He has this prophet standing among them, naming his children these kinds of things. It's extraordinary. But here we are, 2,748 years later, with global scale reports harassing us day and night. And year after year, fears creep in. And we kind of forget that the God of the universe is with us. He's walking with us. He's saying the exact same things. These fears will not overtake you. These catastrophes that they've spun up to stir up your emotions will not have you. And God walks with us in these, and oftentimes we ignore him. We get in these conversations. We stir ourselves up. We stir others up. The official report comes out via some college professor or government appointee or some news anchor. They lay out the problem just like these officials have. They stir up the fear and compel us to basically believe in ghost stories. I want you to think, I'm 53 years old, so I remember some of the ghost stories. You guys are going to start putting these things together after a while, and you're going to go, huh, for instance, when I was in junior high, you know what we were afraid of? The new ice age. Yes, we were going to freeze to death. Uh, it was just a matter of time because we had basically created some sort of blocking of the sun coming in and we were just going to die. And they had evidence, you know, they had all their statistics and their graphs, and that's how it was going to go down. Now, that fear lasted as long as until the global warming fear came along, which seemed to me to be a very contradictory fear to throw in there. But nevertheless, they did, and Al Gore comes out with his inconvenient truths, which are now very inconvenient for him because we were supposed to be underwater in 2014, according to him, if you remember. You guys remember that? You mean watch that? It's hilarious, but if you watch it now. And here we have all these inconvenient truths being thrown at us with great urgency, and people are stirred up. And that's what the culture's relying on. I mean, let's face it, in 20, in 20, I'm sorry, 1950, we gave up the classical model. Critical thinking's thrown out the window. Logic is thrown out the window. We now rely on emotion. Go with your feelings. Look inside. What are your passions? Seek those. Trust your feelings, Luke. Stretch out. Don't even get me started. (laughs) It's all about feelings. And now we have a culture that can be tapped into any time anybody wants. All they got to do is have the right graphs, the right urgency in the voice, and the right scary story to tell. And we, as a people, run with it, get excited about it, start emailing and texting and messaging about it. And the question we have for that, here's the point. Who's your daddy? Who is your dad? Who's your father? Is God sovereign or isn't he? Are we really going to allow the world to control us and manipulate us like this? And better still, who's your best friend? What is your filter like? Think about Jesus. What did he do? Jesus lived in a very similar environment that you and I live in. You say, what do you mean? There's no technology. Technology is nothing. People are people. doesn't care what generation they're from. He had the same kind of issues he was dealing with. 
And he didn't chase after these issues. Did he jump to every self-righteous, social justice moralist when they called? Think about the issues that people are wrestling with today, the things that are most important. Jesus didn't touch any of them. Very few. Did he listen to every political hack who has never managed a real job but thinks they know how to save the world? Sorry, frustration's coming out. But think about what Jesus did. He followed the teachings of Scripture. He looked at God's word, and that's what he did, no more, no less. And he was righteous, completely righteous before God. Did he listen to every religious guru who had a new idea about missions or about prayer or about discipleship or about giving, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? He followed the teachings of God. He kept bringing people back to the word of God. No new wheels were being invented. It was the same old, same old. Jesus made it clearer, stronger, more concise, but that's the same teaching. Jesus read and obeyed the word of God 24-7, and that's what he calls his disciples to do. Too many voices out there. Just way too many voices. So God says to Isaiah, do not call conspiracies. All these people call conspiracies. Do not fear what they fear. Poor Isaiah. <laughs> not only had to deal with the voices around him who were speaking out of their fears, but he also had to contend with voices from the other side. If we look at verse 19, this is interesting. Verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers, those are people who bring back the dead to communicate, right? Who chirp and mutter. And he says, look, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Now, I don't know, we don't deal too much with the issue of mediums, you know, uh, they're sort of by the wayside. Come, they're in other parts of the world, obviously, but around here, since we kind of jettison spirituality as a whole, that's not really an issue. But people in fear want to know more than God has revealed. And this is a real temptation, you know. Um, once your fears are stirred up, you want some answers. I mean, I remember when my father uh, had his heart attack over 10 years ago. There's only one thing we want to know is, is he going to live? You know, every time the nurse opened the door, the doctor, we were just looking, constantly looking. Is he gonna, we want to know more than God was going to give us at that time. People want to know. Once fear is stirred up, you're desperate to know. It's almost you can't take it. It's a kind of torture. How's this thing going to pan out? How's it, how's it going to work? Are we going to survive? Are we going to get through this? Now, if they aren't concocting their own conspiracies and creating their own fears and solutions, they're inventing mystical answers spurious theories in the name of science, philosophy, spirituality. The people of Israel, Isaiah's day it said that they were constantly hearing the word of God, constantly seeing the word of God being demonstrated, yet they did not understand or perceive what they were hearing, yet that did not satisfy or change their desire to not to know. They had to know. So fear, in my mind, is kind of, it's kind of pain. It's a kind of anxiety. God often uses suffering to help us to grow up. In fact, all the ancient cultures tended to look at suffering as a means to come through something, to develop as a human being. In our secularized culture, we see pain and suffering as an irritant, something to be dismissed. And our solution are experts. We go to that doctor or that therapist or whatever, and they'll take away our pain. 
it's not, not a biblical approach. Our culture tends to see pain as an impediment to our pleasure, period. The causes of it, the changes that should be taking place in our lives, we don't really consider those. To this end, people turn to experts rather than God and his word. Tim Keller has a lot to say about this in his book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. I recommend it to anybody. It doesn't matter if you're going through pain and suffering. It's one of those things that orient your life around real life. Anyways, I'd like to read a fairly large excerpt from this. Hope you don't mind. But I think it really does nail down what I'm talking about here um, in the sense that we are often turning to other voices, other gurus, other experts, when we should be turning to God. So this move, making suffering the domain of experts, has led to great confusion in our society because different guides of experts differ markedly on what they think suffering should do. As both a trained psychotherapist and anthropologist, James Davies is in a good position to see this. He writes, during the 20th century, most people lived in contemporary society have become increasingly confused about why they suffer emotionally. Then he lists several things, uh, biomedical psychiatry, academic psychiatry, genetics, modern economics, and says, as each tradition was based on its own distinctive assumptions, I think that's kind of a key phrase here, it, it, you scratch through anything, there's underlying assumptions that are there. That's just the way human beings work. We are finite. We don't have absolutes except the revelation in the word of God. Anyways, as each tradition <coughs> was based on its own distinctive assumptions and pursues its own goals via its own methods, each largely favors reducing human suffering to one predominating cause. This is biology, faulty cognition, unsatisfied self-interest, etc. As the saying goes, if you are an expert in hammers, every problem looks like a nail. This has led to understandable perplexity. The secular model puts sufferers in the hands of experts, but the specialization and reductionism of the different kinds of experts leaves people bewildered. Davies explains how the secular model encourages psychotherapists to deconstruct suffering, not seeing it as an integral part of a person's real life story. As evidence, Davies refers to the BBC interview with Dr. Robert Spitzer in 2007. Spitzer is a <coughs> psychologist, I'm sorry, a, a psych, psychi I'm sorry, psychiatrist, yeah, who, he who headed the task force that in 1980 wrote the DSM-3, third edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders of the American Psychiatric Association. When interviewed 25 years later by the BBC, Spitzer admitted that he believed that they wrongly labeled many normal human experiences of grief, sorrow, and anxiety as mental disorders. When the interviewer asked, so, you have effectively medicalized much ordinary human sadness? Spitzer responded, I think, we've, I think we have to some extent, yes. How serious a problem it is, I don't know. 20%, 30%, but that is a considerable amount. Davy goes on to say that the DSM focuses almost completely on the symptoms. Last quote. They were not interested in understanding the patient's life 
or why they were suffering from their symptoms. If the patient was very sad, anxious, or unhappy, then it was simply assumed that he or she was suffering from a disorder that needed to be cured rather than from a natural or normal human reaction to life conditions that needed to be changed. Now this is huge. I don't think you understand what we've been thrown into and how you and I have been raised. As Christians, we're supposed to look at suffering as an attempt of God to speak to us. The first question that should be asked is, God, what are you doing here? Where are we not right? Where do we need to go with this? What are you trying to work through here? Isaiah is asking the necessary question of the experts in verse 19. Shouldn't our fears, which drive the questions, find answers in our relationship with God? Rather than all these other sources that we run to. We move into spurious, the realm of mediums, when we pretend to know more than God has revealed. When we allow our experts to look past faithful obedience and dependence on God as our cure and comfort. And that's, that's critical. God is supposed to be our foundation. He is supposed to be the father we come home to every night. He is supposed to be the one that in the morning when we rise and we take his word and the light dawns upon our soul that he guides and directs our path and we hold to that every moment of the day. But instead, because we're intelligent, because we're arrogant, we think we got it figured out. According to this, our experts appear to be more concerned with removing the pain in life rather than finding God in all of life. As Christians, we know that our pain can be a sign that we are living contrary to God and that we must go to him first and align our lives with him through his holy word. Yet the people under Ahaz refused to look to God first or last at all and would eventually bring the full wrath of the Assyrian empire to their doorsteps. But that's another story. Consequently, Ahaz and his experts turned a year of fear into a decade of anxiety and stumbling in the dark. Look at verse 14 through 15, then I'm going to jump to verse 20. This is this idea that God's presence, for those who believe, is a sanctuary. But for those who don't believe, he is a constant irritant. Verse 14 and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Verse 20. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and against their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is not just spiritual language here. He's talking about what's going to happen to Jerusalem, and it literally does happen. When we as individuals or as people refuse to look to God, we deny ourselves the light. We have no dawn. So Isaiah's words came to pass. 
They actually were locked in Jerusalem. It did become a snare for them because they refused to listen to God. So eventually they had to hide behind the walls. The threat from the Syrian-Israeli alliance starting around 335 basically (coughs) lingered for almost 13 years. 13 years they were fearing an attack. 13 years they were worried if they could actually plant crops or go outside the walls. 13 years they were stressed and concerned that they would be captured and taken as slaves. It wasn't until Israel was captured by Assyria in 722 that they were able to breathe easy from the Israeli threat. But now they had another threat. The Assyrian Empire was at their door. It's funny, Siri thinks every time I say Assyria, I'm talking to her. (laughs) But Ahaz had sought the help of Assyria rather than God. So 21 more years until until they get deliverance from that, not until 701 are they freed from these empires coming upon them and taking what they're going to have. Judah needlessly stumbled into disaster because she would not believe Now, here's the point. Decades of anxiety, decades of fear, decades of worry grip people all the time. And God is standing there like the prophet saying, Yahweh is salvation. He's right there. He's present all the time. All he needs for you is to give your day, your week, your year over to him. Stop trying to do it on your own. Stop trying to be in your own strength, master of your life. Turn it over to the master. Let him help you. Let him guide you. Let him carry you through it. Then every controversy, every difficulty will be an opportunity for God to work in you. An opportunity for him to grow you up in your faith. An opportunity for you to turn and praise him and thank him for, the, for, the, for being worthy of being tested. So the church in America seems to be dying. I believe it is in large part due to Christianity's reliance on their wealth rather than God, or their education, or the experts, or the normalization of depression, so that they pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. I want you to ask you, where are you in this? What was your life like last year? Was it one of moving through life with God. I don't care if it was easy or difficult. That's, that's irrelevant. Were you moving with God? And this is according to his word, not some fuzzy feeling you had. You read it, now you're doing it. That's a walk with God. That's faith. Not you just making up your own stuff. Is that your life? Or was it this one of, I know I should be doing more. I, I wish I were doing more. I should be engaged more. I should be helping more. I should be praying more. I should be reading. It's constant guilt trip. Again, only do what God tells you to do. You know, if you listen to us pastors, we'll tell you to do all kinds of things. We've got all kinds of things you can do to make yourself grow spiritually. But really, if you're just reading the Word of God, doing what it says, you're in God's hand. You really are. So, the righteousness of life is here for the taking. Being right with God is right here for the taking, just like it was for Ahaz. But who will lay down their unholy fear of men for the holy fear of God? And that's where the rub comes. The idea that we're going to forsake what is known, forsake what is normal, what everyone else is doing, and live for Christ. 
Skip on down to verse uh, 13 there. The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Bind, um, verse 16 now, skip on down there. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. This is Isaiah's stance during all this rejection of the word of God, all this fear, all these brilliant solutions that cause more and more pain, decades of suffering, decades of worry. He was living out the passage you read at the beginning. That's where his heart was. That was his vision was. He was allowing God to be his wonderful counselor through all of this. He was allowing God to be his government through all of this. That's where we need to get to. In verse 13, God commands Isaiah to fear what is proper, not to fear everything else that men fear. So rather than fearing nations and the seemingly infinite concerns of men, God reminds Isaiah to fear and dread the Almighty. This is more than a reverent fear or an awe of God. We're talking about, when it says puts the dread on there, we're talking about being keenly aware of God's moral purity, his perfect moral purity, and his omnipotence, his omnipotence, that power, that raw power for him to exercise his judgment, exercise his wrath when he chooses. When we're aware of these things, we're always being forced to obey, but it, for our own good. I want you to consider this really quick. The church today doesn't really fear God. They tend to forget this is the same God who flooded the entire earth to wipe out unrighteousness. They seem to forget that this is the God who put his own son on the cross to make sure every sin was paid for. The modern church seems to think that mercy will be extended to the unrepentant and that grace is for everyone, as if hell doesn't exist and that God will leave the disobedient not covered by Christ, unpunished. This idea of a, a church following in these directions, it's not a huge leap afterwards to say, well, you know, if God's not really going to punish the unrighteous, I can probably get away with stuff too. With this belief comes license. And again, it is so contrary to Scripture, so contrary to God's heart and the way he demonstrates himself, obviously, through story after story after story in Scripture. Don't allow yourself to be tricked by your own theology. Look at the stories. Look at the cause and effect relationship. It's the same true today. The cause and effect relationships that take place here are also the same ones that took place back then. The universe God created is not altered. It's not muted. Only those who understand God's terrible justice understand the worth of his love. I want you to think about that for a moment. The idea that God would take his own son to satisfy my sins, what could be more humbling? What could be more devastating to my ego, to my arrogance, to my prideful self? And in that realization, I come to not only appreciate justice, 
but I come to love mercy more than anything else. And in that state of humility, I am the only one who can go out to a world and preach love the right way. Not this kind of love that says everything goes, we're going to justify your every sin, we're going to make it okay, we're going to confront it with righteousness, but with the kind of humility that says, it's not because of my righteousness, it's because of Christ's righteousness, that you stand guilty before God. But it's also because of Christ's love that you stand redeemed, or the ability to be redeemed before God. Is it, they, it is they who carry the testimony of God's love, for only they can love their enemy as God loves them. Ask yourself, do you have a holy fear of God? Really, do you have a holy fear of God? Is your day marked with temptations that are dismissed with, how could I? How dare I violate this sacred pact that God has given to me, this sacred sacrifice, this precious blood that's been poured out on my behalf? Does that come to mind? Is it dismissed with that? Or is it dismissed with some other theology, some other reasoning? Isaiah's disciples obviously kept the testimony and teachings of Isaiah. We have him still today. But I don't think they just kept him to prove that his prophecies were coming true. They were kept to show us this lesson from Ahaz's life and Isaiah's life. Both men lived two very different lives. Ahaz's rebellion could have been turned around with one step of faith, one act of obedience. All he had to say to Isaiah was ask him for a sign to have himself convinced that God was going to deliver them from the threat. Instead, he chose a year of fear that led into decades of anxiety. Isaiah, on the other hand, while God's face was turned away from Judah because of their disobedience, still placed his hope in the living God and his hope in God's words. Therefore, he, among all men, has the right to say, bind up this testimony. Hold it. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, you know where you're at spiritually. It's not for me or anyone else to judge you. Do this self-work right now. Analyze your own heart. Was your year marked with numerous acts of obedience to Christ? Out of your holy fear for the sacredness of what he's offered us through his blood of tainting it, of dishonoring it? Or was your life one of frustration, one of anxiety, one of worries, one of concern, constantly relying on your own ability to get out of your situations? You got a choice to make this year different. <laughs> These New Year resolutions, you know, I have one for you here. Obey God's word. Just obey God's word. Stop looking for the the silver bullet, the secret answer, the cure to all things. Resolve right now to obey God's word today, tomorrow, the next day, and the rest of your life without wavering, without giving way, without being deceived by all the necromancers and all those who have their super spiritual answers to everything. Focus on the word of God. Now, what I want to do right now, I think I got a few minutes to do this. I want you to go back into Isaiah chapter 9. Now, I want you to look at those seven verses again. And this time, I want you to ask yourself, will you let God be 
a great light? Will you let God be a joy? Will you let him be the given son, the government, wonderful? Can you let him be the counselor, the mighty God, the father, the prince of peace, your justice? Ask yourself that right now as you read. You know what? <laughs> one last pastoral thing, okay, and I'll let you go here. Any one of these, if you were just to focus on it and make that your day, that you're going to let God say, be your justice. In every situation that comes up, every injustice, every slight, every difficulty that you think, that's unfair. But you let God be your justice in every one of those situations. If you were to focus on that, that could be a, a year's journey for you, at least a month's worth. Taking these 10 that I just listed, there's at least 10 months to 10 years worth of working that out in your life. But if you are letting fear drive you to something else, if you're letting anxiety drive you to something else, you are not going to make God's word alive in your life. You're going to keep reaching for other solutions, following other experts in how to run your life. God's the only one who knows. So take a few minutes, meditate on these passages. I hope you continue to do so as you move through this day, this week, this year. Thank you.